A bouquet for Benedict Collins of uh, One News, who released, I think, the best bit of investigative journalism so far in 2021 on Monday, when he revealed Air New Zealand has been secretly helping the Saudi military to orchestrate the world's worst humanitarian crisis in Yemen. So here's how that story began. A Saudi Navy blockade has stopped food and medicine getting into the country, leaving five million people one step away from famine. Now One News can reveal our national airline has been helping the Saudi Navy. So that hits with a pretty heavy thud. Uh, That's Benedict Collins uh, delivering his scoop on Monday. And I mainly want to point to this as an example of dogged public interest journalism, which is affecting meaningful change, everything we want to praise here at Media Watch, of course. But it also is an interesting story about Air New Zealand's PR strategy and media management because something interesting that Benedict Collins said when he uh, was fronting this story was that he had been hounding the airline for, he said, seven weeks. Here's him saying that. All right, Benedict's with us. Air New Zealand really didn't want the public to know about this, did they, Benedict? Oh, they absolutely did not. For weeks they ignored One News. They refused to answer our questions about what they were up to in Saudi Arabia. It took seven weeks for us just to get that statement that you saw there in that track, and that was only after the government got involved. So that's Benedict Collins saying how hard it was to get this story out of Air New Zealand, how they clammed up. Now later, uh, Air New Zealand's chief executive, Greg Foran, said that he'd known about this story for 10 days. He said that about two days ago. That takes us to sort of late January. And these dates are kind of interesting. Why are the dates important? If they're accurate then it would mean that Greg Foran was kind of sitting on this story during a round of pretty soft-focus interviews marking his one-year anniversary as Air New Zealand's chief executive. So just to give you an example of what the tenor of those interviews was like, this is a clip from the AM show. February the 3rd, 2020, is when Air New Zealand CEO Greg Foran took over. What a year it's been, the poor bugger. The pandemic has played havoc with our national carrier, so where to from here? He would never have imagined this. Greg uh, joins us now. Greg, good day. Good morning. Good morning, Duncan. Okay, well, how, many, how many days in a year? What's, what's it felt like for you? 365 was the last count. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, it's certainly been interesting, but you know, what I can tell you, Duncan, is that it's actually been a real privilege. So that's Greg Foran talking to the AM show's Duncan Garner. He also did interviews with RNZ, Stuff and the Herald Business. A lot of them were pretty chummy. Stuff revealed that Foran apparently regularly joins cabin crew and serving passengers on domestic flights. In general, he kind of, Foran at least, struck a pretty disarming and reasonably open figure. But it's worth noting, according to those timelines that I just mentioned before, that while he was making a show of fronting up to the media, he was holding on to at least one one pretty inconvenient bit of information that wouldn't paint him in such a positive light. And given that fact, maybe the media should uh, be a little bit more cynical or could be a little bit more cynical in future uh, when Air New Zealand launches these PR blitzes. Now, this is just a bit of a taste test. I want to say Colin Peacock is going to have more on this on Sunday. I like that description, a soft focus story. <laughs> yeah, they, they, weren't, they weren't hard-hitting journalism, but the, the media probably didn't have any inkling that he was hiding a pretty uh, dark and, and, and concerning story in the background there. Now, Hayden, uh, the next exciting instalment in the ongoing drama at Magic Talk, uh, today MediaWorks announced that Sean Plunkett had 
decided to leave the company? Is that a euphemism? <laughs> decided definitely has quotation marks around it there. So Chief Executive Cam Wallace said that Sean, this is his statement about Sean's departure, he has engaged his audience with many vibrant discussions and I wish him well and the best for his future endeavours. And Magic Talk tweeted that a new afternoon show will be announced in due course. So have you managed to ferret out what was behind Sean Plunkett's decision to leave? Not exactly, but I mean, I have some theories. This obviously all goes back to John Banks. Not that long weirdly, ago. Weirdly, <laughs> Sean Plunkett's reputation as a broadcaster precedes him to the extent that someone else saying something racist on his station ended up getting him fired. So this is John Banks. Two weeks ago, he took a call from a racist caller. He actually added and amplified that caller's sentiments. Cam Wallace the aforementioned MediaWorks CEO, fired John Banks. But in his statement, he said a couple of interesting things which may have contributed to Sean Plunkett's demise. He said, one, bigotry will never be uh, this yeah, will never be tolerated at, me- at MediaWorks. And he said as well that this was an isolated incident. And, of course, a lot of people's eyebrows went up at that because just in December, the BSA actually censured MediaWorks and censured Sean Plunkett, ordered him to ordered the company to pay $3,000 and ordered him to apologise on air over a segment with uh, Louis Rapihana of Tefano uh, Apanui uh, about iwi checkpoints. And the BSA said, and I quote, that the interview reflected ignorance at a level that is offensive and harmful to Māori. So people said, hey... You've got a little bit of an inconsistent standard here. If you're saying that none of this offensive stuff is going to be tolerated, actually you have this recent decision where you have strongly criticised that you actually accepted it uh, from the BSA. Uh, There was also internal friction. Uh, After this John Banks outburst, it obviously caused ruckus at MediaWorks, and some employees actually spoke out publicly. Aroha Hathaway, who's a long-term employee there, she said that this Banks incident, it wasn't isolated, it had been going on for a long time. She actually wrote an open letter to Cam Wallace saying, uh, what are you going to do to make this a safe place to work for Marty? But I think... Possibly most important of all, there's the commercial side of this. There were multiple advertisers that pulled out of Magic Talk after the Banks thing. And this wasn't just something that could be just fixed by pulling Banks off the air for them. A lot of them, Spark, Vodafone, Kiwi Bank, they said, look, we have no plans to return our advertising there. Vodafone actually went as far as to create its own ethical advertising policy, which said that in future it would honour Treaty of Waitangi principles after uh, this incident. And so possibly the station or Cam Wallace felt like he had to take further action. Yeah, well, they had a taste of it with the Roastbusters story as well, where a similar thing happened, and they backpedaled very quickly. But is this basically companies dictating what can and can't go to air? Yeah, that, might have, that would have been an interesting, because you would have been at Radio Live then. And that was, back then, it was on the John Tamahedi, Willie Jackson from memory, and they actually took pretty drastic action because commercial companies promised to pull their advertising. Against John Tamahiri, yes, and what he said on air, that's correct. So, I mean, it is a little bit of a similar situation and people sort of raise freedom of speech concerns about this. But when you think about it, it's a little bit more of just an explicit dynamic of something that's happening implicitly all the time in the ad revenue model because, I mean, when companies are targeting ad revenue, they're not going to 
create shows in the first place if they don't believe that they can either win a big enough audience to appeal to advertisers or they can burnish their reputation to the extent that advertisers are more attracted to them. So that limits what you're going to do in the first place. You're always essentially crafting your content to what advertisers need. Uh, It's a a dynamic that's about as old as the ad revenue model itself, but in this case it's just more explicit and it's more immediate because it's in response to an immediate threat from advertisers in response to content. Uh, Do you think companies are becoming more astute as to where they spend their ad dollars or the companies who place their dollars are just aware that they shouldn't be associated with, with that particular incident? Yeah, is it that the times they are changing in a little, in a way there? And I think that probably companies like Vodafone, I mean, this might sound cynical, but they are probably placing a bet on the future direction of this country. It's a more liberal country, and they are saying, seeing that having their brand associated with kind of dinosaur views is actually probably not a great long-term strategy for them, but also maybe there Understatement. is uh, <laughs> a, a, a more of an activist streak in some of these companies. And you might remember after the March 15 attacks in Christchurch, there was a whole bunch of companies, uh, major telcos, that withdrew their advertising from Facebook because of the absolutely appalling lack of ethics at that company. They broadcast live a mass murder event and so companies withdrew their advertising from them stuff still doesn't post its content on facebook in response to what it considers its ethical lapses so i think there are examples recently and probably more examples increasing examples of companies actually being more picky with where they spend so does this mean that magic talk has reformed I wouldn't say it has exactly reformed. It's a step towards reform, but I have been listening to a bit of magic talk in the last couple of days, and Peter Williams, the man that John Banks was filling in for, has spent the last day or yesterday's show, pretty much the entire show, spreading what I'd charitably call scepticism on the COVID-19 vaccine and essentially welcoming and amplifying vaccine misinformation. So this is a taste of it. This is him responding to uh, someone that wrote into him. Uh, Now, the test subjects, we're being experimented on, and it just doesn't sit well with me, so I will not take it. Yeah, Gordon, that's precisely what I think about it as well. I, uh, I, I, I take that attitude as well. So that's Peter Williams talking about his lack of willingness to take the COVID-19 vaccine. This is him taking a call from a woman who had some outlandish theories about the vaccine. Maybe they would like to look into the fact that um, it will actually affect our RNA and can actually... And Bill Gates has talked about this. He's on record talking yeah. about it. That um, yeah. it will affect, And it, we, we might not experience the effects immediately... Now it might not. It might only be, you know, in a few years down the track when we get another illness. Or, um, yeah. and I mean, for, for the coronavirus, ninety-nine point seven percent of people recover from naturally. I mean, people should be right. questioning it, why this is thing it, was Is it that low? Is it? I thought it was more like ninety-nine point nine percent. But I, I, I hear what you're saying. Oh, yeah. So this is him. Um essentially receiving vaccine misinformation and amplifying it, not pushing back on it. I'm not saying that you can't talk about vaccines. We had Simon Barnett and Phil Gifford talking about vaccines on News Talk ZB. They would respond to it with scientific information. He did not. Both the claims that were mentioned there have been debunked. The death rate from COVID-19 is 
between 0.6 and 1.5%. It's not 0.1%, as you heard uh, Peter Williams say at the end there, but also 5% of the people with the virus become critically unwell, and that's why you have hospital systems being overwhelmed so quickly. Uh, the claim about DNA alteration, that's also just taken from a viral piece of Facebook misinformation. It's been debunked by Reuters and it's centred on the fact that some of the COVID-19 vaccines inject mRNA of the virus's code to allow your immune system to adapt to it. But that doesn't alter your DNA and Mark Linus of Cornell University's Alliance for Science called it a myth often spread intentionally by anti-vaccination activists to deliberately generate confusion and mistrust. As for the human experiment angle, this vaccine will have been taken by literally billions of people by the time it arrives in New Zealand. It's been taken by millions already. We're hardly a human experiment. There's millions and millions of people, and there were tens of thousands of people that took part in vaccine trials. So it's just not really credible, and it's not really responsible to be spreading that kind of information. So where does freedom of speech come into all of this? Yeah, this is it, right? Because people are concerned, oh, you, but you, you're always censoring people. There has to, this is not, with banks, this is not, he didn't get taken off the air because he argued for low taxation and small government. It's not saying that conservatives don't have a voice, and Peter Williams here could talk responsibly about vaccines as well. But this is not on the level of racism, but it's still dangerous and irresponsible health misinformation. He's misinforming his audience on a hugely important matter of public health, and it's something, just like during the lockdowns, which actually is a matter of life and death in some ways. If people take the COVID-19 vaccine, it will save lives. And actually, Mark Delder wrote about this today for Newsroom, but the end of our elimination strategy, the end of our, the opening up of our borders to the world relies on enough people taking this COVID-19 vaccine and being immune from the virus. So, I mean, it's important... If you want more information about why it's important, The Guardian shared a story today from a doctor who'd watched so many of her patients die from COVID-19. And if you read that story, she shares in vivid details the horrors her patients go through as they're put on ventilators, possibly never to recover. So it's really important that when the media talks about COVID-19, it doesn't just blurt out scientific inaccuracies and willfully instill more fear in its audience. It's okay to have an opinion, though, as to whether you uh, are going to take the vaccine or not. Yeah. That's okay to have that opinion. I also think with talkback, I just want to add this. that You still have if, freedom of choice, but yeah. If you say something that is inaccurate, and that's often the case, then you will find that there's a lot of very learned people listening who will come in, like uh, the group speak, and they will correct that. And that's actually mm. very valuable about talkback because you all collectively learn something. Because that forum is there. Yeah, and I, I don't want to just be sitting in my RNZ ivory tower saying, oh, talk back radio, what's the point in it? There, there, there is genuine value in an opening up a public conversation, and it can be done well. The issue, I, Alex Bray's written on this for the spin off. The issue is that when people just provoke for the sake of provocation, it ends up circling the drain and the conversation devolves into something that's not valuable anymore. And there's examples of that. I mean, obviously John Banks was an example of that. I would say this is an example of that as well. There were a few people that came in to talk, to, to try and talk sense to Peter, but when the actual grounding of it is in scientific misinformation and it's encouraging that, that's when it's really concerning. It's not just uh, magic talk. We, you want to talk about questionable content in the Herald. 
on Waitangi Day, actually, Fran O'Sullivan, the Herald's head of business, printed a column that was headlined, Time to Look Beyond the Grievances. This is about... In summary, it praised Judith Collins for insisting that she be allowed to speak at Waitangi's Upper Marae, uh, and it also called on Māori to end their focus on victimhood, she put, I put in quotation marks, and, and instead celebrate the advances Māori have made. This it, is Mikey Sherman? Uh, uh, she wrote a column where she said that Collins, Judith Collins, lacked the cultural competency uh, to be asking for that adjustment, but she also made a thinly veiled reference to O'Sullivan's column where she said, even more ghastly are the cheap and tired claims to drop the victimhood. They so shamelessly tack on the end in their stand of solidarity for what they call all wahini toa. And this is what Mikey Sherman had to say on One News. It wasn't sexist. It was tikanga Māori. And, you know, personally, as a wahine Māori, I don't think it was the place of the wahine Pākehā to be criticising tikanga Māori, which she knows nothing about. So I think a word of caution there. You know, when we... uh, talk about relationships and the need to have strong relationships between Māori and the government, uh, her as the leader of the opposition probably needs to uh, take stock of the way in which she would respond to that. Well, this isn't the only time that the Herald has faced similar accusations recently, is it? No, last year it had a columnist, Tiwila Fuatai. Uh, she wrote in, a, in the paper itself, pointing out its lack of diversity and actually accusing it of participating in racist narratives. So it in response, it has actually promised to make improvements. It's actually, this column came just as the Herald launched its very good Kahu section, which is a, a place for all of its journalism about Māori issues and by Māori journalists. There's also a, a, a headline on Newsroom, which was which proclaimed Judith Collins as having uh, earned a tikanga win for women at Waitangi, and that was also a question. It's, if I had to sum up what I, the tenor of the criticism here, it's that these, uh, it's essentially Pākehā journalists putting themselves on a pedestal and deciding that they can dole out advice to Māori and actually tell Māori uh, how tikanga should be. These people lack the cultural competency to really be weighing in, and they, they're outside of their sphere, essentially. Miki Ngārangi Forbes, uh, the Hui's host, she essentially said that she wouldn't feel comfortable talking to Ngāpui about how they should run uh, their, their welcomes at the marae, because she's from another iwi. It's, it's not just whaikorirua, it's women uh, usher people onto the marae, with the kāranga. Uh, so it, it's a little bit of misunderstanding, people weighing in outside their understanding. And I am too. I mean, I'm a Pākehā guy weighing in on it here. I'm trying to interpret the words of others. So what could media organisations do to avoid these kinds of controversies? Yeah, I guess it's just employing more what Māori journalists. You remember Hedda Gardner during the COVID-19 uh, the COVID-19 media conferences last year. And he was a lone Māori voice, it seemed, at the time. And he he spoke of the importance of getting political journalists into these realms, but not just political realms, into all areas of uh, organisations, leadership, and just general reporting. RNZ is doing that well. Other organisations are doing that well. Things are improving, but there's still a long way to go 